The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Please stand for a reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did, anoint, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the women, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Mary Ellen, for reading the scripture today. I hope my voice will hold up with all the pollen out there. When you coach Little League Baseball, they kick up the dust. That's pretty much all we do out there. And it turns into a nightmare for a Sunday preacher. So uh, bear with my voice today. I find it ironic in this passage as we return to the Gospel of Luke. You may remember last week, verse 34, in the same text. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And here he is at a meal, eating and drinking, and the host doesn't realize he's a sinner. They're charging him for eating and drinking with sinners. And the host doesn't realize he sure is because he can't see his sin. So we'll look at this together and pray that the Lord speaks to us. Let's pray. Father, help us to see what we are blind to. Help us to see what we refuse to. Help us to see beyond the surface of our lives to the depths of our heart. And then help us see Jesus. 
in His mercy and His love. We ask You this in Your name. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Get Low. It's one of my favorites, actually. It's not real well known. It's the story of a 1930s Tennessee hermit named Felix Bush. Robert Duvall plays him, which is all the reason to watch the film. Well, Felix Bush decides to throw his own funeral party while still alive. He said he wanted to be there. So in a particular poignant scene, Felix visits a local minister named Reverend Gus Horton, and he requests the pastor's help to arrange his funeral. And as he walks into his office, he sets a wad of cash on his desk and says, it's time for me to get low. And Reverend Horton says, I'm not sure what that means. And Felix says, down to business. I need a funeral. The pastor says, well, who's it for? He says, me. He says, I've come to ask you face to face what you're going to say at my funeral. What your eulogy is going to be about me. He said, well, Mr. Bush, I don't don't know much about you. I've heard stories. What stories, Felix says. And the pastor says, stories, you know, people talk. And the pastor says, but Felix, what matters is when you've come to the end of your life that you're ready for the next one. Felix, have you made peace with God, sir? Felix says, I paid. By I paid, he means he spent his whole life trying to atone for his sins. You see, in particular, Felix refers here to an incident from 40 years ago where he sinned against a woman and the woman's husband murdered her. And he's blamed himself for that. And he spent the next 40 years depriving himself of a wife and children. And instead, he lived alone deep in the woods, cut off from all community, from all happiness, all in a futile attempt to pay the debt of his transgression. And at this point before the reverend, his long self-atonement project is at a failed end. And after he responds, I paid, Reverend Horton wisely and firmly calls Felix to something better and says, Mr. Bush, you can't buy forgiveness. It's free. But you do have to ask for it. Our passage this morning shows us one character who knows she could never pay the debt she owes. And shows us another one who is inaccurately calculating his debt, or even worse, thinks he has none, or even worse, thinks he could pay what's ever there. One is moving towards Jesus in this passage. One's moving against Jesus in this passage. The question for us this morning is where will we move? as a result of hearing the Word of God this morning, will you move towards Jesus or away from Him and against Him? Let's look first that Jesus has something to say to self-righteous sinners about grace. That point comes out of the text when He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) Jesus has something to say to self-righteous sinners about grace. We begin at the banquet in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. 
And so right there, you see that Jesus has been invited into what would be known as a banquet in that time. Private life was not something that people enjoyed. It was an unknown reality in that day. If you had a meal that was a banquet, a public banquet where you were inviting a distinguished guest in, people could come in and look in. It was what you might call first century rubbernecking. They'd stop and peek in and stand on the roofs and look in at the party and listen. But if you were at the table, you were the invited guest, but everybody else could come in. This woman who says she's a woman of the city, which indicates she was a prostitute, she knows she would not have been welcomed into that home by Simon. But she finds her way in as they are seated around the table. You would recline on one arm and lean towards the table and your feet would be pushed to the outside of the table. And that's where she finds him is just below Jesus' feet. And right away in the first part of 36, you, there's a tension that we may miss culturally. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. The tension is this, there's a lot missing. It's immediately clear that the host of the meal, Simon, has failed. And in our culture, if you come to a house for dinner, I'll shake your hand at the door. I'll, I'll take your coat. I'll offer you something to drink. But if you came into my house for dinner and I just never got out of my chair and acknowledged you, you would realize I'm not sure I'm welcome here. Well, it's the same way in that culture. You would offer water for the dirty feet. There were animals everywhere on muddy roads. When you got to somebody's house, you need to wash your feet. There was an offer of a kiss, like a shaking of a hand, or the oil that you would place on the, the guest of honor who Jesus is at this banquet, and, and none of that's there. And so the absence of these realities from the beginning of the meal is a clear sign that Jesus is really not welcomed here. He's been brought to this party for attack. I had a friend once, a Georgia Bulldog friend, who went to a game in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He bought a ticket on the street, so glad to get in, thought I'd just go wherever he wanted to. But in Baton Rouge, you walk in the gate and you're stuck in that section. You got to sit in that section. So when he turned to go up the concourse, the guy that sold him the ticket stood up and looked at all the LSU fans and said, I brought him for your pleasure. <laughs> okay, that's sort of what Simon's doing. I brought him for your pleasure. Let's, let's get this examination going. No welcome. Hostility from the start. And verse 37, it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She's been there since he entered. It tells us later in the story. She's a sinful woman with a shamed past and present. But it seems she had heard this message of grace that Jesus was sending. She was so glad to be near Him at the table. The message of grace for sinners, a message that the Pharisees around the table disagreed with. They believed God cared for the righteous who kept the law. That was who God cared about. And here's this woman, the text, Behold a woman of the city who was a sinner. 
You then see the outpouring of love and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And so they didn't offer her water, but she provides the water with her tears. You imagine the volume of tears taken to wash Jesus' feet? The sinner before a gracious Savior is weeping and washing his feet with her falling tears. Why is she crying? It seems maybe she witnessed the hostility towards Jesus, this one who she loved, and she weeps over His humiliation. She couldn't ask for water. They wouldn't have given it to her. And she was determined that her Savior not be humiliated, so He must be welcomed and honored. And so she wept and provided the water through her tears. And then there's no towel. They didn't give her a towel. So she says she wiped them with the hair of her head. That would, have, that would have been a scandalous moment at the banquet. Middle Eastern women were obliged to cover their hair in public. The Mishnah says that going out with your hair unbound as a woman was justifiable grounds for divorcing a wife without a financial settlement. It was a big deal. It still is in the Middle Eastern world. A recent prime minister of Iran said this, it is the obligation of the female to cover her head because this is bizarre, but this is what was said by a recent leader of a country. You've got to cover your head because women's hair exudes vibrations that arouse, mislead, and corrupt men. So when she lets her hair down as the towel the air would have come out of the room. Even more, she's not just substituting for a towel. She's pledging allegiance to Jesus. Why? How do we know that? In Middle Eastern society, a bride on her wedding night would let down her hair and her husband would see her hair for the first time. And it was designed as a pledge of loyalty to her husband. This woman... No water, tears. No towel, her hair. She's pledging allegiance to Jesus. Her gracious Savior. And then no kiss, no oil, but she provides the kiss. And she provides the perfume there. It says, she kissed His feet and anointed them with the ointment. This expensive perfume oil might be called dirty money. Probably brought to her from her business on the streets. This amount of oil was 300 denarii, probably eight months' wages for her. Olive oil would have been readily available in any home for anointing, and she couldn't ask for it, but she brought this because she wanted to honor him. She was enamored with him. She wasn't trying to earn anything from him. She was enamored by him. They didn't anoint him as the guest at the banquet, so she decided she could, and she would. She couldn't get to his head as she was above at the table, so all, all that was before her were the feet. So she began to kiss, pour out that, that perfume upon his feet, and anoint and honor Jesus. There's this moment where the the examination's actually begun at this point. It wasn't planned by Simon to go this way, but Jesus has come to be put on trial by the guys around the table. Well, now he's really on the stand. How's he going to react to this? 
Simon sinking in his head, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. He believes she has an infectious disease that he doesn't, called sin. In Luke 18, as we read this morning, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. That's his posture. This was an embarrassment that a sinner would come near, and this would determine the worthiness of whether Jesus was actually a prophet or not and a teacher because of how he would react to a sinner. What would he do when a sinner acted like this upon him? He is on the stand. How will he respond? And in verse 40, Jesus answering said to him, please notice, Simon has not asked a verbal question. He had said that to himself. Simon should have had his answer right here that Jesus is a prophet. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Which again, culturally, that phrase is a classic Middle Eastern idiom for this is about to be blunt speech that you don't want to hear. It would be like looking at someone and saying, buckle up, I got something to say. And you can still see his arrogance when he says, say it, teacher. You can see the posture of this Simon. I have something to say to you. And then he teaches this parable in verses 41 through 43. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Has anybody ever answered you like that? Particularly like if you're a parent, your child. Like, you know, should you have hit your, kid, your sister with that toy truck? They're like, well, I suppose no. That's really not a confession at all, right? That's not a humble answer. It's, I'm not giving you all of my repentance. I'm not going to admit what's obvious before you. Which one will love him more? Yes, the one who was forgiven the larger debt. It's clear there's a creditor with two debtors. They cannot pay. They cannot compensate the creditor for their debt. And we know in the Bible that debt is synonymous with sin. In Matthew 18, the Lord's Prayer, debt and forgiveness. And which will love him more? And he says, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. Now there's two applications of this scene to this point. And the first is this. I invite all of us today to face our haughty heart and plead to God for a harlot's heart. That's the invitation today. Face the haughty heart inside and plead for the posture of a broken, needy, glad for grace, harlot's heart. Don't run from what's inside. Don't run from what's true of you. See it and fall before Jesus. Do you know we all like to hide and arrange our lives so no one sees the ugly? And so that we can look and say, Look at that sinner over there. 
This is for an illustration purposes, but Thomas Jefferson's Monticello plantation in the Virginia Hills is has intentional architecture to it that made it possible for Jefferson to host guests in his parlor and dine with them at his table and gaze at a sunset from his veranda without any of the guests ever being aware of the expansive system of human bondage that made the memorable evening possible. It was in the architecture to arrange it so the ugly of Monticello would not be seen. So, guests would occasionally see smiling and respectably dressed African-Americans passing down a hall, exiting a room, disappearing into a narrow staircase, but the full truth was hidden behind the walls where guests sat, beneath the floors where guests danced, behind the ridges guests admired. There was an entire, entire community in chains. You know we do that kind of architecture with our lives. I want you to see the veranda of my life and the, the good, but I'm going to hide all the ugly because why? Essentially this, we don't believe Jesus is big enough and good enough to deal with all of our sin. This woman knew He was. Face your haughty heart. Plead for the harlot's heart. And then face the enormity of your debt and receive Jesus' extravagant forgiveness. The dinner scene places Jesus in a room full of sinners where perhaps only one is recognizing the true account balance of their life. The ledger of her life is clear. An incalculable debt that I can't pay. But the host can't see his need. He can't see his guilt. He's never dealt with the depths of his heart. He cannot and will not respond generously to this God-man at his table. His spiritual superiority keeps him religiously busy, but even in the very presence of Jesus, he's very far from him. Do you see that? It's possible to be spiritually superior with religious busyness and be far, far, far from Jesus. We miss this, guys. I know it in my life. I am a lazy sin hunter on the own property of my life but I am fierce on everybody else's property. We know that, right? We know that I'm a lazy and lenient accountant when it comes to looking at the ledger of my heart. But boy, I'm a brutal and harsh, harsh auditor on everybody else's account. Only the posture of a harlot's heart will set you free to hunt on your property and be free. Because of Jesus. Now the scene continues in verses 44 through 50. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? If there's one thing that you want to go home with, take Jesus' question to heart. And I would ask all of us this morning the question Jesus asked Do you see her? 
Do you see her? That's the sermon point. Jesus says, do you see this woman? This is unbelievable. Jesus is about to rebuke Simon in his own home as the host for failed hospitality in public. It's like going to someone's house for a meal and after the meal you say, you know, next time when I come over, could you actually cook something that's good? You know, Jesus is about to say, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. You're a failed host and you can't even see your sin there. He contrasts the woman's outpouring of love versus Simon's lack of honor. Just look at it. Verse 44, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. And therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Behold the woman's extravagant love. There's a couple of lessons there, but first a clarification. The woman is not forgiven because of her action. The woman is not forgiven because of her extravagant gift to Jesus. Instead, because of what she's done, Jesus makes the conclusion that she has been forgiven for this is what forgiven people are like. That's why He says, do you see this woman? This is what forgiven people are like. Her extravagant love is evidence of her forgiveness, not a pathway to earning it. Her beautiful worship is a consequence of the love of Jesus for her, not the cause. And that's why he says, do you see her? Because the lesson of her life is this, we will never express what we do not embrace. You can't express this sort of love if you don't embrace it. You can't embody this sort of generosity if you don't enjoy Him. That's why He says, do you see this woman? Her, her giving with holy abandon only happens because she's embraced the grace of Jesus. And that makes us extravagant givers. Embracing God's grace makes us extravagant givers. The extravagant giving is a result of being forgiven, not a way to earn it. Do you see her? And also, listen, guess what? You should expect opposition to such a response of extravagant love for Jesus. You should expect people to say, you've gone a little overboard. That's what the Pharisees would say, that this response, and, and I promise you, a response to Jesus that is extravagant with your life will always shock the religiously self-impressed. It always will. And that's what's happening at this table. But then you have the Pharisee, Simon, beware of the self-righteous response. He says, he who is forgiven little loves little. Well, let's clarify that statement. It doesn't indicate that Simon is forgiven. His lack of love reveals his lack of forgiveness. For forgiven people don't act like that. Do you have a harlot's heart? Or do you have the posture of haughty Simon? Beware 
The Pharisees essentially come to examine Jesus because they want Jesus to avoid her because she's a sinner. But this is the point of the dinner scene. Jesus would say, if I'm to avoid sinners, then I'll be obliged to avoid you, Simon. Is that what you want? We don't know the answer to that. It'd be very fascinating if Simon shows up in the new heavens and new earth and says, boy, I got owned at dinner. I'm glad he turned me around. If I'm to avoid sinners, Simon, I'll have to avoid you. There's two questions here. Do you see this woman? And then the last question in verse 49 ends with, who is this who even forgives sins? Well, the answer, this one who forgives sins, God in flesh is at the table. It's the same one in verses 1-10 through 10 who healed the sick. It's the same one in verses 11-17 through 17 who raised the dead. It's the same one in verses 18-35 through 35 who said He has come to fulfill all the hopes of the coming anointed one. Indeed, the one at Simon's table is indeed the one who can forgive sins. And who can forgive sins but God alone. God's at His table in the person of Jesus. That's the point. So He says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Who is this who forgives sins? Jesus. Only Jesus. I close with this from Dane Ortland in his work, Defiant Grace. Christianity is the unreligion. It turns all our religious instincts on our heads, on their heads. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations, but only the Gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. Let's pray. Thank You, Jesus, for amazing grace. Thank You this morning for allowing us to see this woman. By Your Spirit, help us to see her and to hear Your words about her every day this week. That people that are near us because of our lives might look at us and say, you're forgiven, aren't you? Because that's only how forgiven people would act. We ask You to do this for Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen.